0: Building safe and affirming and welcoming communities is a necessity, not just because it's the morally right thing to do, not just because we're now seeing that it's also economically the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do because people live or die based on the decisions we make.
1: Welcome to another episode of Pod County. So excited we got, we're finally launched. We're, we're in the interwebs. We're on the interwebs. We're out there. Uh, Two great episodes with Ken Bolden and Penrose Hollins already out. Uh, Councilman Hollins called me on Monday to tell me that someone had called him and to tell it brought them to tears. Which I, if you had told me someone would ever say that about one of our podcasts, I would have I would have thought like tears of agony. But apparently, apparently we're doing okay. This podcast today is with another phenomenal individual sarah mcbride uh if you are unaware of sarah's story it is it is a crazy one for how young she is and i don't want to ruin any of it for you going into this but i will tell you there's a book uh she has a book i highly recommend getting her book and reading it after you have listened to this because this won't ruin much of it for you but there we will talk about a lot of her life as she has has it in the book so uh sit back relax enjoy uh this this discussion with sarah mcbride so sarah mcbride you are the the national press secretary for the human rights campaign
0: That's right. I nailed it. National Press Secretary of the Human Rights Campaign, the nation's largest LGBTQ civil rights organization. Awesome.
1: Uh, That job in and of itself uh, is, is worthy of praise. But you, before you were in that position, have done a lot of really fascinating things. You were in the Obama White House as an intern. I'm pulling all this from the book you wrote, which is a fantastic book. And I re- regrettably am not farther into it. It was my my goal over the last two weeks was like, I'm going to read this thing. And I got uh, 85 pages in and that's work wouldn't let me finish. But well, I was oh,
0: planning on quizzing you on the entirety of the book. So you're
1: let me tell you, 85 pages, the first <laughs> 85 pages. I'm like, oh,
0: my God, how can this book be longer? There's so much in you. You know, that was one of the things after I read, it, I was like, God, I've had a lot of life in the last six years
1: you are a you're you're transgender and you are a transgender activist and so this book is very much about your life from your transition and coming out and and your your advocacy uh since then and it's very much kind of your mission um in in everything that you're doing now and at least in 85 pages that i've gotten through holy moly there's a lot in there.
0: Well, and 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 the the book's titled "Tomorrow Will Be Different." Love, loss, and the fight for trans equality. Um, the love and the loss will come in later in the book. Um, and and for me, that's the most. You know, the advocacy is is sort of the side story at the end of the book. Mm. It's more than anything else a love story between um, me and and uh, Andrew Cray, uh, an incredible incredible man that we can talk more about as the interview goes on
1: there's a lot in here in the book I mean you have whole chapters on what it was like but that moment really struck me when you you were wrestling with it and wrestling with coming out to the closest people around you and then I was really like I wasn't ready for their reaction I'm sure you weren't ready for their reaction because you were in it how I mean and that was that was several years ago How, um, how have things moved on? How, what was, I mean, tell people who don't know, right, because there's going to be people listening to this who don't know what that, that experience was like, how you wrestle with it and then where you are now.
0: So I I grew up in Wilmington, um, West 17th street uh, in Wilmington, Uh, graduated from Cab Calloway School of the Arts, born and raised in, in, in Newcastle County. Um, For my entire life, I have known who I am. I didn't know that there was anyone else like me. I didn't know that there was anything I could do about this fact, but I knew deep in my heart and in my bones that I was a girl growing up. It was about I was about 10 years old when I first found out that there were other people like me. I was watching a sitcom with my mom uh, called Just Shoot Me, and over the course of the episode, a guest character is introduced and revealed to be transgender. Um, and one of the running gags throughout the episode is that every single time a, a character expressed any kind of interest in her physically uh, or romantically without knowing that she was transgender, the laugh track would cue. And I remember turning to my mom and and asking her, is that real? Are there people like this? And my mom said, yes, they're called transgender or something like that. And in what could have been a life affirming moment of finding out that this fact that I had known about myself, despite what the world and society had told me, um, that there was something I could do about this identity that I knew I belonged to. But in reality, my, my heart sank because at 10 years old, you don't know a lot, but you know you don't want to be a joke.
1: Right, so you're, you're seeing this that you didn't know, right? And, and so I, I guess I should kind of also add to this. One of my best friends in high school... I mean, no, none of us knew until uh, a few years ago when, when she transitioned and, and a lot of things, a lot of things made more sense. I wish we had, I wish we had grown up. I mean, I grew up in Cecil County. um, So I wish we had grown up in a much more progressive area where she would have been able to tell us, but I would talk to her today because I'm like, you know, before I sit down with a, a leading transgender activist, I should probably talk to the one person in my life who I know is transgender. And she said something very similar to what you said, and like she'd never seen this yeah. when she was growing up.
0: And that's the thing, you know, Newcastle County's an incredible, an incredible place to live. It's an incredible place to grow up. I I love that we are in a state of neighbors where everyone knows one another, and and where people, you know, are able to move past prejudices and misconceptions. You know, not that we're immune to those, but we're able to move past them more easily because. We get to know people, and, and, it's in, and it becomes much more difficult to hate up close. Um, but this was the 90s. This was well before the information spread throughout the Internet like wildfire. This was before trans identities and trans rights had really entered mainstream political discourse. And so at this point in time, you know, you're, you're growing up, and the only reference points you have are really a, a dead body in a drama or a punchline in a comedy. And so you quickly internalize that. You quickly internalize the, 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 the reality that you know who you are, but the rest of the world might, at, at worst, will respond with hatred and discrimination and violence, and really, at best, will respond with laughter and mockery.
1: Yeah, if you're lucky, you're a joke. Right. And if you're not lucky, you're a victim.
0: Exactly, exactly. And so you internalize that quickly, and for me, I, I, I internalize that instantaneously. I mean, I had already been internalizing sort of the societal rigid gender stereotype. So I, I, I already understood what was expected of me before I found out that there were transgender people and that that we were mocked or laughed at or discriminated against at that point in time. And, and so I had already internalized a lot and, and this information just sort of was like a dagger in in the heart. And so I kept my gender identity buried deep inside. I think one of the big challenges we have in the fight for transgender rights that's different than the fight for, for gay rights is that most people who are straight can understand what it feels like to love and to lust. And so they're able to enter into conversations around sexual orientation with an analogous experience that allows them to find empathy and build support and compassion and passionate support. But most people who aren't transgender, the the term is cisgender for those who aren't transgender, most people who are cisgender don't have an analogous experience to having a gender identity that differs from your sex assigned at birth. And so it becomes much more difficult to enter into those conversations to wrap your mind around what does this feel like and where does the motivation to then come out and transition come from? And while it's different for everyone, for me, the closest thing that I can compare it to of of being in the closet as a trans person was a constant feeling of homesickness, an unwavering ache in the pit of my stomach that would only go away when I could be seen and affirmed as myself. And by the time I was in college, I was at American University down in Washington, D.C. I'd, I'd been elected student body president during my sophomore year to serve during my junior year. And by that point, my gender identity was a fact I thought about every single waking hour of every single day. I had been involved in politics, I had worked for Governor Markell and, and Attorney General Bo Biden, and I had convinced myself that if I could make a difference in my community, if I could make my family proud, if I could come back to Newcastle County and start a family and find love and, and, and do work that fulfills me and helps my, my, my neighbors, that those things alone would bring me the wholeness and completeness that I lacked. But it was really during my time at American serving as student body president, having a chance to make some change in in my own community there, that I began to realize that as fulfilling as it was, as important as it was, it wasn't going to solve this pain and incompleteness. And I had to, at that point, come to terms with my gender identity, that the only way to alleviate that pain was to take the steps towards authenticity.
1: And between, well, in in this point, since you've been elected, and then to the end of your term, I mean, that's really when you kind of put your foot down right like this is it i'm here you started coming out to your closest friends and, and then your family and then the world in in the if people don't know fairly infamous facebook post because it spread like wildfire when it happened famous not infamous, infamous i hope no fam- <laughs> infamous is bad okay. yeah right, right yeah famous, a, famous. A,
0: a note that will live in infamy uh, yeah yes. that's true okay
1: yes. in, infamy bad f- famously good yeah okay so yes. famous
0: facebook post <laughs> please keep that in by the way I, yeah <laughs>
1: Yeah, I usually will leave in when I sound stupid. <laughs> uh, not all the time, but I'll leave that one in. That was good. Um, but the, the Facebook post where you you told everyone, you told American, you told the world, and and you talked about you talk about in the book uh, how you weren't sure how that was going to play, and then pleasantly being surprised how it did. I guess going back. To when you first made the first decision to tell somebody, how do you feel that went? Like how how does how did it happen? And then how did you envision it happening?
0: Coming out was the hardest thing that I had ever done up until that point, but it was still easy compared to the experience of most people. Sure. Um, I remember, you know, I had started, I had started to somewhat grapple with my gender identity with two or three close friends over the two or three months before I ended up coming out to my parents. And I knew the moment that I, and I had not shared this with anyone prior to that, because I knew the moment that I even admitted that I was struggling with this was was going to be the moment where I admitted that I'd eventually come out, that it would only be a matter of time. And I wasn't even in a space where I was ready to to start that path. And so I, I started grappling it with friends and they responded positively and supportively, which gave me then the courage and the confidence to contemplate coming out to my parents and eventually, you know, with the intention of, of living authentically publicly. I remember sitting in th- my church, Westminster Presbyterian Church on, on Pennsylvania Avenue, with my parents on Christmas Eve, listening to the choir sing, looking up at the stained glass windows, and just thinking, I cannot spend one more day missing the beauty in this world because I was so consumed by that pain and that incompleteness that I, I legitimately couldn't think about anything else. I couldn't experience life. I couldn't experience the beauty in this world. I couldn't experience all of the emotions that define humanity and define life. I, you know, after I came out, people would always say, I, I, hope you're, I hope you're happy now. And it was always said with the best of intentions, but I didn't come out to be happy. I can't, came out to f- be free to pursue and feel every emotion, to think more clearly, to, to survive and to be myself. And so I literally didn't wait one more day after I had that realization on Christmas Eve. I I came out to my parents on Christmas Day in 2011. And my parents had welcomed and affirmed and supported my openly gay older brother, 10 years older than me, when he came out about nine years earlier. I knew my parents were progressive, inclusive, forward-thinking, compassionate people. But I also knew that my news would be very different for them when compared to my, my older brothers coming out, because I knew that while they would eventually come to the right place, the journey there would be very difficult for them, almost more so than me, definitely more so than me. I had already, I had already taken the difficult part of my journey, that their journey would be difficult, because I knew they would feel two things. One, and they're wrapped, in, they're wrapped together. One is that they would feel like I was dying, they were, they were going to feel, as I had read other parents had felt, which I knew my parents would feel knowing my parents, that they were losing their child. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's difficult to conceptualize keeping your child when the child that you refer to as a specific name with specific pronouns and looks a certain way isn't going to look that same way. is going to be called by different pronouns and a different name. It's going to feel, it's hard to conceptualize that per- feeling like the same person. Um, and so I knew in some ways they would feel like I was passing away and then I also knew that even beyond that, that knowing that I'd still be there, they'd, feel re- f- they'd fear rejection in every sense of the word. Because at that point, you know, this is 12 years after that, that sitcom I had watched, the conversation hadn't changed that much mm-hmm. around transgender people. They didn't have reference points for transgender people who were successful and fulfilled and happy, who were loved and in love, who were affirmed and welcomed in their communities. And so it was very difficult for them when I came out. But they also made clear that they loved me and that they'd be by my side every step of the way. And so with the courage that that they gave me in May of 2012, during the last day of my term as student body president, I came out to my campus. I came out to my community back here in Delaware. And I came out eventually more publicly to the country because of the note going viral uh, as transgender. And I was incredibly nervous about how my campus would respond um you know it's it's american university it's a progressive politically active campus but it, again I, I didn't have a reference point for how my campus would respond to an out transgender student let alone an out transgender student body president but every single comment every single response that came in was a message of love and support and, and celebration celebration and the diversity of our community celebration and the fact that our differences make us better and stronger and celebration in the fact that our campus was responding in the way that it was responding with that love and support and you know as student body president i always said that our college campuses should look like the country we want to build in 10 or 15 years and i think on that day at american university we were trying to send a small but important message that while we may not totally understand what it means to be trans while we may not be able to wrap our minds around this experience this is how you respond with love, with kindness, with respect, and yes, with celebration in our diversity.
1: That weight that was lifted—like, what was that feeling?
0: It was profoundly meditative, more than anything else. Like, it—it it, it, it wasn't a sense of euphoria or joy, or—or or, or it was just my mind is free. The weight has been lifted off my shoulders, and I can finally breathe, and I can finally take in the world and and the beauty in the world.
1: Was it tough to write about that coming out process to your family when you were going through their reactions and the conversations and the, I think, kind of the bargaining that was kind of happening initially, relive it, and then put it on paper for the world to read? How was that process?
0: One of the things that was difficult was knowing how much my parents had evolved, knowing how my parents are in a place where they are my fiercest allies, advocates, and defenders, where they have both said that, you know, after I came out, my mom said, what are the chances that I have a gay son and a trans child? What are the chances And feeling so sorry for herself? And my hope was that she would go from asking that question, what are the chances that she would go from a place of asking it out of self-pity into a a place of awe, in awe of the diversity of our family, awe awe in the fact that they had raised children who had the confidence and self-awareness to come out. And they've gotten to that place. And so, one of the big challenges was trying to do my parents justice sure. of not painting them in a in a in a negative light because, again, frankly, the way they came, the way they responded was overwhelmingly positive, particularly by the standards of 2012 or 2011. And so, I, I I wanted to do it in a way where people would find compassion for my parents in their response because, at the end of the day, I also think that it's important for us to model evolution. It's important for a parent who's struggling to be able to read the book and see, oh, these parents felt the exact same way as I felt as I feel right now. And to read on and find them getting to a place where they are, without skipping a beat, embracing me as the daughter that I am, without without batting an eye, embracing me as the daughter that I am. And so I think having that evolution, I think it's important for parents, siblings, friends, or just anyone who's struggling with these issues, who maybe has some of the questions my parents have, who have some of the fears, if they're a parent, that my parents had, and to know that there's a path forward for them, that they can get to a, a better place, and that the world will return to normal at some point.
1: I think that's really probably one of the most important aspects of the book, because I think, you know, any any question I had, you hit in the first 50 pages. It was pretty, I mean, like, I think the only one for a while that I had had left there, I'm like, well, and you know, here's like, how did you pick your name? And then you got to, I'm like, well, there's that question. I like, yeah. guess I don't have any more left. But yeah, I, I, when I was reading through that, and I and I felt the same way. I'm like, you know, the again, the one experience I have having a really close friend, or or at, you know, was a really close friend, go through this, and having a very opposite experience. You know, having mm-hmm. having one parent left, and then having that parent who. As fairly homophobic to begin with, mm-hmm. and then b- reject them altogether was, you know, pretty pretty eye opening. And I and I hope that parents would read this and they would look at it and and go back and say that that's still my kid, right? That's yeah. not that's not a different person. But that really hit me. And then of course, you know, going back again when we when we look back at this time when we were teenagers and. And then we went our separate ways to college and we had a bit of a falling out senior year. We didn't hang out much after that. And a lot of that, I look back now, you know, she was struggling with this internally and was coping with it with drugs and with behavior that, you know, we we kind of went tough love with. And like, mm-hmm. if you're going to do this, we're not going to hang out mm-hmm. with you anymore, thinking that'll stop it. Right. Thinking that it's regular teenage behavior. of right. Experimentation. In reality, this person has a very torrid struggle going yeah. on inside. And they're trying to silence it or cope with it. And I, you know, I told her, I was like, I wish, I mean, we were teenagers, right? Like, I, I wish I'd known. I wish in 2005, you know, I had had the wherewithal to recognize there's something going on here.
0: Well, you know, I I, I think the story you just described, described is, is, I think, a very common experience. And, you know, first off, <laughs> trans people can make mistakes, too, and, and, and people can... Re- can respond with, you know, the appropriate tough love or the appropriate, you know, feelings of this isn't a person who I want to necessarily, you know, spend time with right now. Um, and, 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 you know, that's still possible, even also with understanding the mitigating factors that sometimes can, can come into play. Sure. Um, and that being in the closet is a pain, can be a f- very painful experience and can cause us to do things to silence that pain. And, and for some people, it's substance abuse or behavior that, that, that isn't healthy for them or others. And in some cases, the extreme of that is sadly suicide for far too many people. The thought of living in this world authentically is incomprehensible and, and, and so, so scary that you'd rather than just end your life than exist in this world in either the pain of being in the closet or the fear of being out. And that's a, that's a sad reality. I, you know, I, I look at this issue as a public health issue. We know one of the things that after I came out, one of the things that my dad did is he went online and he Googled the word transgender. And he came across an aptly titled report called Injustice at Every Turn, which is quite the spoiler alert in a name. And, and through the stats, you know, one in four transgender people fired from their job because they're transgender. One in five homeless, Um, he came across a stat that that left him particularly uh, startled, which was that 41% of transgender people attempt suicide at some point in their lives. And that's not because transgender people are predisposed to attempt suicide. It's because of the societal barriers to happiness, wholeness, fulfillment, and community. Because what you also see is that when, in those stats, is that when the transgender person is accepted by their family, that number drops in half. And when they're embraced by their community, it drops even further. Study after study has shown now that when transgender people are allowed to live authentically from an early in age as they declare and assert, and to do so with the support and love of their family and their community, that they report the exact same mental and physical health outcomes as their non-transgender peers. And so, when people are forced to be in the closet or forced to live in a world that doesn't accept and affirm who they are, people die.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And when people live in a world where they're allowed to be themselves and to be supported in that, people live. And it's literally that simple.
1: Yeah, it's not a not a trans or cis issue. It, it, if you're if you're forced to essentially live in a live in a box, right? If you can't be free to be who you are, it's not going to end well. It, it it's it could be anything.
0: And 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 that building safe and affirming and welcoming communities is a necessity, not just because it's the morally right thing to do, not just because we're now seeing that it's also economically the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do because people live or die based on the decisions we make. And we are seeing that not just on these issues, not just on LGBTQ issues more broadly, not, we're seeing that across the country right now that issues of dignity and equity and justice are not some abstract luxury issue they're not issues that we can separate from economic issues these are about people's ability to live in a country to live their lives and at the end of the day if we abridge that ability we are we are not just violating our moral trust we are not just we are not just undermining our economy's ability to tap everyone's talents we are undermining people's ability to live
1: i think to to that note you know, talking to her today about a lot of this stuff, you know, and I said to her, I was like, you know, I, I think as, as the one person I know in my life who's openly trans, we should talk. And she's like, well, I'm not really open anymore. Mm. And I was like, well, I, I need you to explain that to me because I don't understand. And to people who were in her life for a long time, she, she came out, but to a lot of new people, they don't know they don't know that she's not a cis woman. Mm-hmm. And that really struck me when I, especially when I look back at your book, cause you talk about being in the EEOB, the, the, the Eisenhower executive office building mm-hmm. when you were an intern and people not realizing, mm-hmm. and then it being like a moment for you of like, well, wait a minute. You know, I think mean, you had like an internal moment of like, am I disappointed about this? It or what? Like, right? What's, what's am I going? relieved or yeah. am I disappointed? What's or happening? Kind of both. Yeah. And and for her, it's more of a choice because she's more concerned about the the safety aspect yeah. of it, right? That these people that she works with, some of them are not of an open mind, yeah. and could it could it impact her?
0: And I, you know, it, it it's a it's a frequent it's a frequent question that I get. You know, one of the things that. I think dangerous that has happened in the LGBTQ community is this idea that everyone has to be out. Everyone has a responsibility to be out. It's, you know, you're, you're shirking your responsibility to your LGBTQ, you know, community members. If you're not out and you're not out in every circumstance and you don't live your life as this advocate. And I think that's a really unfair burden to place on people because there are a lot of people for whom being out can put them at risk of being fired from their job or kicked out of housing or, 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 put them at risk of facing violence. For some people, frankly, just being out m- because of social stigma creates pain for them because they know that they're not being seen fully in their gender identity. And so I think we have to make clear that everyone has to make these decisions for themselves, that there's no right or wrong way to be trans, there's no one way to be trans, there's no one way to go about this journey. And for some people, that means you know, once they, once they transition, not sharing that information publicly. Some people aren't able to do that because of a number of different factors where the world maybe just presumes they're trans no matter whether they share it or not. But you know, everyone should have everyone should make these decisions for themselves and and outing people is 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 a is always the wrong thing to do. When I came out my mom asked me, she said, Do you want to be known as Sarah the trans woman or Sarah the woman? And I said to her, I want to be known as all of the identities that I have. And I want to be, I'm proud of all of the different identities. I am proud to be both a woman and a trans person. I am proud to be a Delawarean. I'm proud to be a a member of this family. I want to be known in all of the identities. I don't want to have to hide any single one of them. And I want to exist. I want to build a world where I can be seen not as one identity in spite of the other identity. I want to be seen in all of my identities and affirmed in all of my identities. I want to build a world where being trans doesn't create an asterisk on my gender identity. So that's the space I want to f- I'm f- fighting for and that's the world I'm fighting for. And at the end of the day, I am proud of who I am. I'm proud to be trans. Being trans has made me a stronger, better, more compassionate person. It has shown me the generosity and compassion and grace of my family and friends and in my community. And it's led me to meet the person who became the love of my life, Andy. And so I wouldn't trade being trans for anything. And, and one of the great things about my parents' journey is that they have said, if there was a button that I could press that would make you not trans, I wouldn't press that button.
1: Which is great, right? That's where you want... That's exactly so where, want, where
0: I wanted my parents to be.
1: So where you, I, I would imagine every relationship, right? Like that's that's the point. If we get to that point, we're good, right? We can we can move forward now. Everything is as it should be. I, I guess that was kind of the question I was going to go into. You kind of touched on a little bit of it. it, because you're it's such a big part of your life in what you do as an activist. Does it? I don't want to say, does it get old, but like, does it become like burdensome that that's the first thing everyone associates you with and that you got to get past that point first?
0: Truthfully, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it can be annoying when it's the only thing people see you as, when you feel like you have a lot to bring to the table and that's the one thing people associate with you. And it's not because I have any shame in that being associated with me, it's just because I want to be seen in all of me. One of the things that I, though, have seen time and time again among my neighbors is that this is this is a state that people could care less what my gender is they just care whether I'm nice and kind and compassionate whether I'm you know living the values that I'm fighting for more broadly in my own life and I think that's that's that makes us a a unique kind of community because I don't think that's the case in many places My hope is that eventually we get to a place as a country and as a community where people don't just say, I don't care about your gender, where we can say, I love your gender. I love everything about you. I love that your diversity enhances the vibrancy and the beauty of our community and our country. Because at the end of the day, the world would be very boring if we were all the same. And it is in our diversity that things are interesting, that things are beautiful, that we get insights that we wouldn't get if everyone was the same and and I and I want us I want us to get to pla- get to a place where we recognize that our diversity is something to be celebrated not just to ignore.
1: I think I think one thing that I really picked up today again talking to my friend who who's also transgender uh, and one of the when we talked about, you know, okay, well I'm not really open with a lot of new people I meet because I'm worried about some of these safety things. But then in general, you know, I said, well if if you have concerns, in you know the way the world is right now are your concerns more female safety concerns or are they trans safety concerns and sh- and she kind of said, well, both I mean I have mm. I have conversations with my cis female female friends about things that are going on, but then I have com- conversations with my trans friends who, W- similar concerns, but but even more elevated. I mean, and to the things she was describing, like handmaid's tale, like what, you know, what if they take our passports? What if we can't do this? What if we're no longer deemed citizens? What if, how as an activist or as a person who's fighting for policy, how do you talk to people who have those seemingly legitimate concerns with things that we see happening daily? And what is your vision for for hope for the future that you can tell them, you know, it's going to get better. Tomorrow will be different.
0: There is obviously a lot of cause for concern in the current political environment. But I think there's a few things that, that I, I keep in mind and, and certainly things that I find hope in. And, and, you know, I wrote this book in the six months after, seven months after Donald Trump was elected. So for me, in many ways, writing this book was a journey back to hope for me because I was certainly suffering from a, a crisis of hope. And the, the things that I, I share with them, first off, they are not going to take away our citizenship. I mean, for at least for folks who are legal citizens today, and there are trans people who are undocumented immigrants that we have obviously heightened issues. I think there can be a tendency to, to jump to extreme conclusions as to what's going to happen. And I think we should always you know, be be fighting to avoid the most extreme negative situations, but I also don't think we should jump to those conclusions and and, and because it, oftentimes that'll just result in us getting completely consumed by cynicism and fear. At the end of the day, I'm actually as hopeful as I've ever been for a couple of reasons. One is what we've seen time and time again on LGBTQ equality is that every single time the government comes for us, every single time anti-LGBTQ politicians come for us, every single time discrimination seems to move forward in the political debate in the short term, we end up having a conversation with the country that serves to open hearts, change minds, and in the end it sows the seeds of the destruction of the politics of hate that those anti-LGBTQ activists and politicians seek to implement. No one would have thought in 2004 when marriage ban after marriage ban after marriage ban was passing in states across this country, no one would have thought in that moment with those conversations, as hurtful as they were, as dehumanizing at times as they were, that it was actually going to be the beginning of the end of the opposition to marriage equality, that within 11 years we would have marriage equality in every state in this country. In 2016, when, when the North Carolina governor targeted transgender people for discrimination with, with HB2, thinking that it was going to be his ticket to reelection, no one thought at the start of that, and particularly he didn't think at the th- start of that, that it would result in him being defeated for reelection, the only incumbent governor in the country to lose reelection that year. And in large part, it was because he targeted transgender people for discrimination. Time and time again, when they come for us, we end up growing stronger. And, and the second reason why I remain hopeful is it's easy to get consumed by the negativity at the national level. It's easy to get consumed by the tweets and the talking heads of of, of the of the federal conversation. But at the end of the day, we can't lose sight of how much progress we've made. I think the challenge progressives always have is we can't. We can't be ever pacified by our progress, but we also can't forget our progress because the moment we do that is the moment we lose hope that we can continue to make change. And we can't forget how far we've come. We cannot forget the fact that there are millions of LGBTQ young people today who are doing what once seemed so impossible to me that it was incomprehensible growing up. They are now living their truth and dreaming big dreams all at the same time. There are same-sex couples who are legally married in every state in this country. There are, are transgender people who are being accepted and embraced by their families with broad smiles and open arms. There are young people who are dreaming of being president of the United States or a famous movie director and being transgender and out all at the same time. These are significant changes that we have helped usher in. We have transformed impossibility into possibility into reality, and we can never forget that.
1: I, I really think when you, you talk about that hope, right, that dearth of hope and, and where you are now, I can remember covering Prop 8 when it happened in California. And then I can remember the day that it was overturned and going to the, uh, the county clerk's office to, to, to photograph people getting married. And then the stay happened and then watching the rejection and that. But there was a rejection, but there was still like a feeling of we're, we're getting there. And to think, Less than 10 years later, same-sex marriage is, is legal everywhere thanks to the Supreme Court. I think the same thing you said, that you can be trans and you can see this, these the bathroom bills and the other attacks on that community, but look at how quickly when the tide started to turn, it turned.
0: Well, and we've already seen it for the trans community. I mean, Donald Trump tweets a ban on transgender people serving openly in the military. The first poll that came out had opposition to that at about 50-some percent, which was a solid majority to start out with. Within a week, the majority had grown to 68%. Now more than 70% of Americans oppose Donald Trump's ban on transgender people serving openly in the military. Every time we have these conversations, because the moment you make that synaptic connection between the identity that 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 you hold the prejudice towards, the moment you make that synaptic connection between gayness and marriage or trans people and serving their country is the moment that you are now inevitably going to go on a journey towards seeing that gay person or that trans person within the context of their humanity.
1: Uh, I see the county executive walking by the studio. Matt, do you want to jump in here and get a couple questions in?
2: Hey, yeah. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Sarah. Sarah, I'm late. I actually just have a couple. Qu- I didn't really prepare as much as I should have. I just have a couple questions for you. Your message is always laced with hope and with progress, which is really appreciated. What do you think is going on in our country now? Like When you look at where we were 10 years ago 15 years ago 20 years ago there's a sense that in so many of the things you're talking about we've made so much progress in people's attitudes there's so much progress if you talk to 20 and 30 year olds today compared to 10 or 15 years ago i feel like we've made so much progress yet if you turn on the tv and watch what's happening uh in our senate and house and what elected leaders say today you kind of wonder and i was just wondering what you what you think
0: I think right now, we're at a moment in our politics where we have to decide whether we're going to be a country where everyone has the freedom to live openly and equally or where we're going to be a country that seeks to restrict our understanding of we the people. And I think in many ways, we are finding ourselves in a situation where a lot of people are in pain. A lot of people feel unseen and unheard. And I think too often we tend to fall into this trap of trying to prioritize pain, of saying, my pain's worse than yours, or your pain's not as bad as mine. And I think when we do that, the result is people then have to start defending their experiences, defending their pain. It only makes them angrier, and it only makes them more frustrated. I think we have to get to a better place, left, right, Democrat, Republican, on the coast or in the heartland. We have to get to a better place where we can truly see everyone, hear everyone, and recognize that there are real issues that are facing people whether they're people of color living in the city, whether they're undocumented immigrants living in Sussex, whether they're um, working class folks in Claymont who have seen a lot of their industries evaporate over the last several decades, that these are real issues and that the pain is real for each and every person. And I think we have to acknowledge that pain. We have to validate that pain, because if you're forced into your corners to defend your pain, You can't then have a productive conversation to move forward because you're so caught up in the anger of having to say, but I'm actually hurt. And I think that's one of the issues that we have in the country right now um, is that we are we are trying to we are we are constantly trying to diminish the pain of others in order to validate our own pain. And so I think we need to make sure, as people who are activists or in politics, that we do a better job of truly recognizing and seeing the pain that exists. communities across our country. Um, I also think that things are changing pretty rapidly and people feel a sense of the world is in flux. They can't necessarily wrap their minds around it. And it's difficult to see a path forward. And I think when when folks feel like things are out of control, for many people, their instinct is to look backwards, is to grab a hold of the few things that maybe they, they think they understand and I think the other challenge we have to have is to say, yes, change can be scary, but it's oftentimes in the biggest crises, it's oftentimes as we face our biggest challenges that we take our most significant steps forward. And the challenges and, and, and the change and the, f- and the flux that exists in society is an opportunity that we have to meet, that we have to seize this moment, that we have to create, the, uh, uh, we have to take the, the, the dynamics and the changes that are happening in our economy and our communities and to, to say, these changes require big action, and we have to give people the sense that, that our government is actually trying to address the big cha- challenges that we face, that we're not doing small ball, that we're not, we're not pushing them off for another generation. Because I think at the end of the day, the, the, the threat that we have toward equality, dignity, and democracy is inaction, and in a sense that things are just so stagnant that we can no longer make big change happen. And and I think we have to one. So we have to challenge. We have to address and validate the pain that exists in this world, and we have to give people the hope through action that we can actually address the challenges that they're facing in their everyday lives. And and I think when we do that, we'll hopefully be able to help heal the wounds in our country and start to have a conversation um, that's more productive.
2: I think you're right that this is a moment of opportunity that our country is seriously divided. Take. A random group of 10 people in New York, Philadelphia, DC, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, ask them Dallas, Atlanta, ask them what they think about LGBTQ rights. Chances are you'll get a very different answer than if you talk to someone in rural Iowa, uh, Sussex County, Delaware. you know, I think that creates a divide, you know it, there's a divide in attitude in this country, and I think it's our job as leaders to make sure whatever we're talking about, whatever our policy agenda is, we're bringing people together. And we recognize that we're all Americans here, and we all need to work together with an appreciation and respect for each other to move this country forward. There have been much greater challenges in our country's right. history than there are uh, today. And also, just having spent some time, some of my adult life, working outside the country, it's incumbent on us to be united as a country. If we're divided, that ultimately will hurt all of us. All of us.
0: Well, and I think I, I think you're so right. I think one, there there's there's obviously a massive urban rural divide in, in this country. It's not necessarily red states and blue states. Mm-hmm. It's, it's urban and rural. And right now, you know, we, we, we talk about how our diversity is our strength and we have to recognize that. But we also can't ever forget our common identities and our shared hopes and our shared dreams and the things that bind us together are far greater than the things that make us different. And I and I do think that, that too often our rhetoric right now ignores that fact. I also think that right now we have this this challenge where no matter where you are, we are we are having two different conversations. And I think one of the big challenges we have right now is how do we seize the technology and, and particularly the social media to figure out democratizing the microphone and, and getting people access to information is fantastic and important, but how do we ensure that we're still having the same conversation because right now it feels like the left is playing baseball and the right's playing football. How we are on just two different we are playing by two different rules, we are playing on two different fields. With we playing two, two different completely games. Different set of facts. Right, exactly. And so I, I think one of the challenges we have is we have this bifurcated media, whether it's twenty four hour news, internet new internet or social media in particular. And it's how do we how do we figure how do we bring us together to have the same conversation because we can use all the right rhetoric and we can use we can have wonderful policies, but if all of that is being filtered through a prism that, that through a perspective that that doesn't want us to be heard, it's going to be difficult to reach fifty percent of the country. And I think that's one of the biggest questions we have. And I think the only way for democracy to to thrive is for us to have a conversation that we're all a part of. And and I think that's one of the challenges we face with this individualized sort of self curated media
2: that we have right now. Yeah, Sarah, you spoke at the 2016 Democratic mm-hmm. National Convention. You're, how old were you then? 25. And you uh, that must be the youngest Delawarean ever to speak at a national convention. I imagine the only person probably in my lifetime to speak at the DNC other than Joe Biden and Jack Markell. I think something like that. What's that like? 25-year-old standing in front of the nation's Democrats, national TV? It was... One of the most inspiring and empowering
0: experiences I, ha- I have ever had. It was a responsibility more than anything else. I knew that I had four minutes on that stage. I knew that, that as the old saying goes, people aren't going to remember what you said. They're going to remember how you made them feel.
2: Did they tell you what to say, what not to say? They wrote, didn't. I wrote my speech myself. Did they myself. tell you what not to say? they didn't but so i'm you sure stood up there and endorsed anyone that's, true, that's <laughs> right that's right i could have like i, I could have
0: gone rogue why yeah. is martin um,
1: O'Malley not here that's right, right. <laughs>
0: that's right it felt like a responsibility to do right by the communities that i was representing whether that was my home state of delaware whether it was the trans community i'll never forget um, right before i went out on stage um, a person said to me everyone's in the arena they're all here to hear Hillary. And so no one's going to (laughs) listen. Everyone's going to be milling about talking. It's going to be loud. No one's going to applaud. No one's going to do anything. Now now you have a little preview of what it's like to be counting. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was, and they said, the instinct is for speakers to start screaming, to invite the audience in and and sort of invite them in with their charisma. And they're like, don't do that. It looks terrible on television. That's a fact. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to not be able to strike this balance. I'm going to start projecting and screaming and it's going to look terrible on television and i had and i knew that there was a chance that like cnn and msnbc would actually cover the speech but the moment i walked out for the first time that night the audience started applauding and listening and it wasn't about me they had no idea who who i was specifically but they understood that this was a moment
2: it was historic that this
0: was the first time in the convention that a transgender in a major party the, convention right. that a trans person would be in american speaking.
2: history yeah
0: and and for the first night that that first time that night The arena started applauding in unison and knowing, standing on that stage, that there were transgender people across this country who had, throughout their their lives had had seen in politics that we were hated at worst and a burden at best. To see thousands of people in an arena in what is sadly traditionally the most cautious field, politics, stand up and applaud and affirm our dignity and affirm our cause as their cause. For whatever has happened since then, that feeling has never left me. That we have an alliance of supporters, thousands of people in that arena, and millions of more people across this country who have made clear that our cause is their cause, that they will be by our side every single step of the way, that they'll fight with us and for us. And I saw that firsthand at the convention. I've seen that in the years since fighting for LGBTQ equality. And that is a profoundly comforting fact. To know that we are not alone in this journey and in this fight. You know, no matter no matter what policies Donald Trump and Mike Pence seek to, to push forward, they aren't going to close the, the minds and the hearts that have been changed over the last several decades. And, and the change that we have seen, policies can be changed one way or the other, but the attitudes have changed, and they've changed for the better. And in the end, that will lay the foundation for equality to move forward.
1: Acceptance and understanding doesn't really go backward.
0: That's generally speaking, right? That's generally speaking, right?
1: You know, your work in the Obama administration, you came in, you were, I want this internship, it's so competitive. You were also very clear in the book about like, I don't want to be the token transgender person either. How, when you got it and then you got in there and you got to work on all these cool things in the Office of Engagement. Talk about that experience being that close to a, a, transformational administration
0: yeah you know I always say I will always be hopeful because of the fact that I turned 18 in during the 2008 election um, that my first vote was for Barack Obama for president that's an incredible privilege I had thought eight months before I entered the White House that when I was coming out I was giving up on my dreams that there was no place for me as a transgender person in our public, civic arena in government, in politics, certainly not in the White House. And so to be able to walk into the White House, to, to, to walk up the stairs to the Eisenhower Executive Office building and enter through those doors and have the portraits of President Obama and Vice President Biden greet you and the Secret Service agent take my ID and say, welcome to the White House, Miss McBride, that's a really powerfully affirming moment. And, and I think in so many ways reflects what that administration was, which was the realization of the White House truly being the people's house. Every single day in the Office of Public Engagement, we got to invite people into the White House who for 200 plus years would never have gotten an invitation, whose presence there would have been politically controversial in some instances, some more recent than others. We would invite them in to talk a little bit about what the administration was doing for them, and to hear from them about what more the administration could do. And to see people every single day coming into that space to have their voices heard and to be welcomed in the White House by the nation's first black president. If, if that is not a reflection of change and progress, then I don't know what it is. At its most visceral, it is a, a truer form of a government being of the people, by the people, and for the people, all of the people. And that was really inspiring to be a part of and, and to be in that, in, that, in that building with so many people who were there for the right reasons, were there to do good and be good. I, I, I certainly didn't want to be the trans token, but I also understood that I had a responsibility as the first trans woman to be walking those halls from on a day-to-day basis working there, at least out transgender woman, that I did have a responsibility to take that moment, to take that opportunity to educate people in the highest levels of our government about who trans people are and what our needs are, because it becomes much more difficult to deprioritize an issue when you're walking the halls with a person impacted by it, when you're sitting across a conference table from them, when you have to see them every morning. And so in many ways, you know, the Obama administration had been very proud of LGBTQ from the start, but the progress we saw on trans rights was sort of announced with a whisper. It was pretty cautious. It took trans people being more present in those spaces to, to, to ensure that the administration was more confident and comfortable and passionate about these issues. And and I saw that firsthand, that if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu. That's a good... I'm going to use that.
1: I don't know where I'm going to use it, but I'm going to use it i stolen it
0: from other places. Okay,
1: all right, good. So <laughs> it's just I'm, I'm receiving stolen property. Yeah, but.
0: well, you know... Good lines are neither created nor destroyed.
1: Ooh, see, that's probably another one, huh?
0: I used to work, no, I actually made that up because <clears> that's based on, I used to work at a think tank and I used to say that public policy is neither created nor destroyed. Mm,
1: it's uh, it's just, what, energy yep, matter? that's right. Yeah. When you were at the office, that is where you met Andy uh, and kind of happenstance, right? You didn't, you, you met him again later and didn't realize you'd first.
0: So we, we, we first met, I wasn't actually an intern at the white house yet. When we first met, um, we bumped into each other at a white house pride reception, um, in the white house. though, just shortly after I had come out and, and I'm ashamed to say Andy remembered meeting me, and I didn't remember meeting him.
1: Which is the most awkward feeling.
0: Yes. He did not. He remembered meeting me. I did not remember meeting him. And so as any good millennial does, he followed up with a message on Facebook where he said, unlike most millennials, he thought we'd get along swimmingly. And I thought, what what? nerd says the word swimmingly? But it's a nerd that I'd like to spend some time with. So we started going out. Right around my time, I started interning at the White House. Andy was an advocate. He was about three years older than me. He was about 25 when we met. He was working to expand access to healthcare to underserved communities, including LGBTQ people. And it was right around the time that the administration was trying to get people enrolled in the Affordable Care Act. And so I'd see Andy pretty routinely at the White House as he would come in for meetings with administration officials. And getting to know him, I quickly fell in love with him. I fell in love with his courage, with his optimism, with his incredible energy, but more than anything else, with his really unparalleled kindness. Andy was the best person that I've ever met in my life. We started dating, we moved in together, and then about a year and a half after meeting, Andy was diagnosed with cancer. He was fortunate enough to have um, health insurance, he underwent chemotherapy, radiation and surgery, got a clean bill of health. And then about eight months after that, Andy received the news that every single cancer patient fears. His cancer was back, it had spread, and for him it was terminal. When Andy found out that he didn't have much time left, he asked me to marry him. And we married on the rooftop of our apartment building in August of 2014 in front of our family and friends. And then just four days after that, he passed away. Knowing and loving Andy left me profoundly changed. He taught me how to love and be loved. He taught me how to live the values I fight for at work in my own life. But more than anything else, my relationship with Andy underscored for me that change cannot come fast enough that every single day matters when it comes to building a world where every person can live their life to the fullest. Andy was a transgender man. He had come out in college, had gone on to law school. He was living his life, and, and he should have had three quarters of his life as his authentic self having come out in college. But because of circumstances outside of his control, he had less than a quarter, and, and a lot of people have even less time than that. And what that, experience is, what that experience reinforced for me is what Dr. Martin Luther King called the fierce urgency of now. That every single time we ask LGBTQ people or people of color or immigrants or women or Muslims or people with disabilities to sit back and allow for a slow conversation to take place before we treat them with dignity and ensure them opportunity, we are asking people to watch their one life pass by without the respect and fairness that every person deserves, and that's too much to ask of anyone. We've talked a lot about finding hope in this conversation. And I think for me, in writing this book, one of the, one of the other things I realized, in addition to, to all of the progress that we've made, the progress I've seen in my own life, the transgender young people I get to meet across this country who are living their truth and dreaming big dreams all at the same time, in addition to all of that, one of the things that I've also come to realize is that it's something my brother told me in the last month of Andy's life. He's a radiation oncologist, and he said, I've seen a lot of people struggle with and eventually pass away from cancer. I've seen a lot of loved ones and caregivers who struggle through that. And the one piece of advice I have for you is in this experience to look around you and take stock in the acts of amazing grace that will fill your life. And that grace, those miracles were truly everywhere, from our friends and family organizing a wedding for us in just five days to Andy surviving long enough to exchange vows. And what that experience has, has left me with is the recognition that all of us, even in the darkest moments, the most difficult challenges, we can all bear witness to acts of amazing grace. It reminded me that hope as an emotion and hope as a phenomenon, it only makes sense in the face of hardship. And that it's, it's oftentimes through these acts of amazing grace, through unending hope, through people of just a little bit of courage, persevering and persisting, that we've made change in every instance, that we've gotten through our biggest challenges and in many cases come out stronger. Mr. Rogers used to say, in a, in a tragedy, look for the helpers. And I think that that's one of the things that I've, I've seen, whether it's fighting for equality, whether it's being a caregiver to my, to my husband, Andy, whether it's any of the experiences I've had, being supported and, and, and affirmed in my identity and, and being able to continue to walk forward from a place of pride, it's that it always takes a village, that it's always a team. But that when the grace comes together and the hope comes together, when we come together and support one another, we can transform impossibility into possibility into reality. We can build a world where you can live your life to the fullest and where we can do it as quickly as humanly possible.
1: To the kid in Wyoming who somehow may hear this, or in North Carolina, or any other state that may be a very closed community or have a history of closeness towards the LGBT community or maybe actively trying to pass laws that discriminate against that community. What's the message of hope or, or what do you say to them to keep them holding on?
0: Two things. One, there is an alliance of supporters around this country who see you, who love you. who are fighting every single day to make sure that you are treated with dignity and respect, that you may feel alone in the moment, but you're not alone. And the second is a lesson that I have learned in my own life facing online harassment that I didn't think when I was facing it, I I didn't think before facing it, that words on a screen could affect me as much as they do, or they did. I remember I took a selfie in a bathroom in North Carolina that I was technically barred from being in in 2016. It went viral, and the messages of hate and the death threats that came in were just overwhelming. And more than anything else, the, the message that came in the most was a, a message, just three letters, KYS, K-Y-S kill yourself, kill yeah. yourself, over and over again. And again, I, I was 25 at the time. I didn't think these things could affect me, but they did. It's the only time in my life where suicide even became a rational thought for a moment. And I thought, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I have thick enough skin for any of it, for, for advocacy, for politics, whatever it is. I don't know that I can do it. And I spent a lot of time reflecting and I came away with an important realization that allows me to move forward, and I hope it helps other people who face bullying or hate or rejection. Everyone has an insecurity. Everyone has something that society has told them they should be ashamed of. Whether it's your gender identity or your sexual orientation, whether it's how you sound, what you look like, what you do, any host of different characteristics or identities or experiences, everyone has, has something that society says they should be ashamed of and they should hide. And the thing about LGBTQ people, is that we have taken that insecurity and that fear, and we've not only conquered it in many cases, but we often conquer it and walk forward from a place of pride. And the bullies see that power. They see that individual agency in conquering your own fears and insecurities, and they're jealous of it. They're jealous that they don't have that power. So you need to know that you are powerful. You are powerful just by being and you carry that power with you from the safest of spaces to the scariest of places. Sarah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on.
1: That was was awesome. Sarah was a... Fantastic guest. I can't can't thank her enough. Uh, We're here now after with our fact check with with our no longer intern Sam now employee Sam. That's right. That's right. I'm more official than I was before. Now now here now I have real responsibilities. Yeah, with 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 medium power comes (laughs) medium responsibilities. I don't know if that's the quote, (laughs) but it's more apt to you now. All right, Sam. So so we talked about a lot in this. Uh, what,
3: what what, what, do we need to clarify? So I think that this issue is like really kind of, you know, the whole LGBTQ community and, and the trans community is kind of like, uh, I think, a very uh, generational uh, topic because I think for my generation and even, you know, we're pretty much in the same generation. This issue is something that I think is being a, accepted a lot more for us and, and something that where we are maybe having more compassion towards people who are different than us this is definitely
1: uh i think for us for our generation for the millennial generation kind of like a, w- the same way i guess maybe our parents would have watched the civil rights movement you know, this mm-hmm. is really kind of the, the civil rights movement of our time and you know it, it's hard to imagine especially I, I would think if you're younger than we are now the, the lgbtq community Far more accepted now today, yeah. t- from I think probably probably 2008 to now than it would have it would have been prior to 2000. Because uh, you know Sarah talked about you know in the 90s a lot of these sitcoms you were just kind of starting to see some of these people portrayed, but they were always portrayed. You know, as uh, uh, she mentioned, either in humor or or in you know, yeah. the fatal consequence of being different where you probably wouldn't have seen these characters portrayed in any light remotely positive in yeah. prior to that. But it's crazy when I look back and look, you look at some of like the historical shows, like, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of the terror on, on um, AMC. Great, great show. Um, you know, this season they, they, they're looking at the internment uh, period during world war II. this issue comes out, you've got a Japanese character and a Hispanic character and, and the, the reaction when people find out they're together, right? And that it would be illegal for them to marry because they were uh, they would have been an interracial couple, right? Yeah. And like the, that there was a period where that was like not even speakable mm-hmm. right in society. And now you know, we're, we're so past that. I mean, in general, past that, there's certainly areas of the country that are not past it. but And now, for our generation, into the LGBTQA+ community, you know, looking at same sex marriage and trans issues, this is this is our our time to look at these things and say, well, yeah, these are human rights. Why are we why are we even having to talk about this?
3: Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to just just listening. I think that's one of the biggest things that has changed in my life towards, you know, these types of issues is just realizing that you are never going to be be experiencing the same things as someone else. And Like, it's almost like, you know, the who are you to tell somebody you don't feel like this or you are confused. You know, she said that her gender identity, you know, during college was like something that literally consumed her every day of her of her life. It's the first time I've ever heard somebody use like
1: the homesick analogy Mm -hmm. uh, to to talk about it. I thought that was really that really resonated for me. Like, you, you know, it's finding that way. To put it on terms that you can relate to, if you because you can't relate specifically, and and that was I think pretty salient.
3: So as far as as far as like statistics to kind of back up what we're discussing on this podcast, it, it's it's tough, right? Because this is a this is a very small community, and just recently, there have been more efforts from you know the government side and, and, and like scientific research and stuff like that towards this community to to kind of better understand and, and get the demographics within the community. And the kind of the best thing I found was a uh, 2015 report on the transgender community by the US government. It, w- one of the major issues that that keeps getting brought up at least from like articles and some things that I, w- I was researching that, healthcare and health insurance is is a, is a big issue within this community because being transgender is not 100% supported by the government and supported by, you know, health the healthcare industry that for them to register and get the proper health they need for you know, who they identify as is is a little tougher because one in four respondents to this this 2015 survey said that they wouldn't even step into a hospital because they were fearful of a misdiagnosis. Mm, that, is, that is impactful. I mean,
1: uh, one of the things Sarah talks about in her book is when, when she changed her name, when she officially started going by Sarah, and, and this is right as she's going into her internship at the White House, and the background checks that you have to go through to become a White House employee, even mm-hmm. as an intern, are, are pretty thorough, right? And so how, how is that gonna work? For her and like the the fear, so th- you know you think about from a health uh, perspective, and then you think about from uh, from an employment perspective. Right, when somebody's going to run a background check on you, and what are they going to find? And if you don't have protections, you know, against discrimination because you're trans, then then you live in a in a separate
3: world of fear that ninety percent or more mm-hmm. of the population don't have to deal with. I think a lot of that comes down to like a, almost like a systematic problem. I think that with the new wealth of information and like kind of the internet age and the digital age, I think it's almost crucial for a lot of policies and, 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 and things to be updated to what's really happening in the world now that we have more information. Because a, a lot of it is stagnant and a lot of it is not even intentionally discriminative. right how do we get uh, how do we get our our systems and our institutions
1: up to the speed of society right yeah. to moving moving with us i think you know one one big way we do that is we need to as a, as a population we need to look at who we're putting in office right we need to we need to try to make sure that the people who represent us actually reflect who we are and that that we have you know because we have a diverse society we have div- we have diverse legislatures we have diverse uh, leadership groups, you know, whether it be a city council or a county council or a state house or a Congress or, you know, whatever governing body, it should reflect, you know, as that body, a whole of the body it represents. And, you know, I don't know that we're there yet. We're moving, moving there. Um, but like all government systems, it, it seems to move slowly. And I agree yeah, there's got to be a way. Maybe that's the way to yeah. to get it to move more at the speed of society.
3: Yeah. The more and more we can become understanding towards just letting people live and letting it be part of what is normal, then a lot of this stuff will kind of fade away. Some people can't get past the the initial, like, I don't want to be what I was at birth, or, like, I don't identify as, as what I was identified at birth. And I think that's a concept that people really struggle with, almost sympathizing for, you know? And, and I think that that was a lot of the point that she was driving home, is that you just need to listen to these people and accept that this is a very real thing. And I think she, she talked a lot about her parents and how that was for them accepting. And it it, sho- it kind of shows that you can start building those kind of kind of that that compassion and that and that understanding of, of what the real issues are here.
1: And, and in the media, too. Right. I mean, that's that's one thing she brought up early on is, you know, when she was coming up, you, you were either a joke or a victim. And I think the more that in individuals from the trans community are portrayed in in, in stronger character roles going forward. Mm-hmm. It won't be a foreign, strange concept to individuals. They'll be able to you know, internalize it the same way, you know, the same way that Will and Grace helped so, uh, homosexuality for the general populace.
3: Mm-hmm. You, know, I, you, you need to have programs that can do the same thing for trans issues. It might not be shocking to people, but there is a higher percentage of suicide rate within this community as well. US population averages 0.6% and it's up to 7% in att- this is this is attempted suicides within mm-hmm. the past year is the, the what they say on the survey that that kind of tells you that there is a lot of stigma around this issue and there's a lot of discrimination and harassment and talk around this without um, any understanding and i think what that takes is government funding that takes scientific research and just to understand all of this better so that we can make policies and make health decisions based, like, as best as we possibly can towards the the community.
1: And one thing Sarah brought up, too, is, you know, that may be the the 7% number may be the number overall for the trans community. But for people of color, it's it's significantly higher. Because there are certain communities that the stigma is still so high, especially in communities of color, that a lot of people, they never could come out Mm -hmm. in their own community because of fear of of persecution and ostracization it would be you know it would completely destroy their social network and their support network and the suicide rate in the trans community may be seven percent but it also may be higher because who knows how many suicides and that's
3: exactly and that, that's kind of like the whole point of, of what part of the issue is is that even though there's this this like one survey which is like the only like official i mean a lot of the, a lot of the articles i was looking around were referencing this 2015 survey because that's about all they have for like hard numbers and then I saw a bunch of articles that were even disputing that these numbers are not 100% accurate because it only, you know, surveyed 250,000 people. And, and you know, a lot maybe some, some of the questions aren't perfect, and, and they're not really getting the right information that they need to get to, to kind of understand what's going on. Right, and, looking at the methodology. Yeah. I guess
1: we are at a point where the Equal Protection Clause applies to the gay community. But I think there's even still some areas where that's a question, mm-hmm. like that, you know the the same-sex marriage ruling. I think applied there, but we still you still see where you'll have denial of service in some areas, and then those get individual challenges. So you know even even in that aspect, I think yeah,
3: and uh, the uh, you're I think you're going to go down like empl- almost em- some employment issues going mm-hmm. on, and th- that was surveyed in here too, um, and it it's it's saying that 15% of the trans community is unemployed from the survey, which is ten percent higher than the U.S. average. At least at the time, again, this is twenty fifteen. Right, right, The last information we have on it, but a lot, a lot of the the respondents to these questions had stated that their job either fired them for coming out, or they were not considered for positions because of, of being transgender. So that that's that's another issue where we need to it's it's almost like compliance and like HR, right? Mm. That, it just needs to be part of the culture of acceptance that th- it doesn't, th- that's not why you would or wouldn't get a job, right? Being transgender isn't the reason you shouldn't get a job. Right. It the, should be shouldn't, skills. You know, my friend that, that uh, is
1: trans, that that's one reason that she is not openly trans with people that she doesn't, that she hasn't known since mm-hmm. before, because she worries that, you know, where she's at, she, it, it's, she, it's at will, so you know, she could lose her job for anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same fears that Sarah had uh, when she when she came back to Delaware from American and pushed for the um, the trans protection bill that that she inevitably got passed. Which which actually fun fact because I wish I'd been farther in the book when I when we did this podcast, I like really kicked myself that I hadn't gotten in. But had I gotten about twenty more pages, I would have seen where I make an appearance in the book. Oh. Yes. <laughs> so she talks about working in Delaware to get trans protections passed. At the same time, Delaware was was also considering legalizing same-sex marriage. So two big mm-hmm. issues. Everyone told her you can't do two of these. You can't yeah. do two uh, LGBT um, but th-
3: issues at once. But that's right? the thing, right? Is that why? Why is that? Why is that even a question? Is why it, is it is Oh, that a you can't. You can't do these both you at the same time. You can't move forward that fast. Yeah, and together, it's like yeah. that, so, that's that's what's really frustrating. So
1: so so they they got same sex marriage through, and she's she's on the floor arguing. And when I'm reading this, I'm like, I feel like I covered this. <laughs> I feel like I was there. And then she describes like these the photo that ran uh, on the cover of the news journal the next day, and I'm like, I think I took that photo. And yeah. I went back through my <laughs> archive and I found them all. And uh, and so I tweeted, I was like, you know, holy cow, I just, you know, I'm reading this and now I'm reading about myself. And I, I, she saw that and she was like, you know, oh my goodness. And so, so great moment that came out of that. We went through the, the archive of images that I had from that day. Mm-hmm. And there were images of her late husband who, mm-hmm. had, who had shown up, and she talks about in the book, kind of him like coming there right as it's ending, that, uh, that we never published, that she'd never seen before. So I was able to kind of get her some of those, some of those photos. You know, anytime you can, you can give back to someone who's helped you out. You know, she's she was a great guest yeah. to come in and help us out. So I was glad I could give back and um, and send those to her. But I also let her know that that photo was not the photo that I would have run. <laughs> there was a great photo of her mom hugging. I think it was Margaret Rose Henry, um, who was a big leader in the push, and her mom was you know in tears like when the bill passed. And I really wanted that one, but the one that was it was Sarah kind of sitting on the sideline, like with a tear like running down oh. her face because she had just gone through this really emotional. Yeah, I can imagine. There were a lot of a lot of pushback and, and attacks coming from the the conservative side of the the Senate. So she was she was impacted by that. And so yeah, I mean, you know, doing my job as a journalist I Made a photo of the moment, but uh, I don't think it spoke to the moment of the story. Right, the story should have been more about the elation. But mm-hmm. anyway, I was not the one who chose which photo ran. <laughs> I would have picked another one, but say, vie, it's done. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was a, the little thing that that was kind of cool coming out of that, going back, and I wish I would have been
3: farther and We could have talked about it on the podcast. It's it, again, it's it's tough to. Really, discuss statistics because of the just this almost scarcity of them. I mean, this, this issue has not, has really not been heavily researched and heavily explored uh, for like, you know, official research. You know, you can get people's, you know, think pieces, opinions. I mean, <laughs> you Google anything, you'll get 50,000 results of people's thoughts on, on the matter. But how do you know how to support a Yeah, how if do you know you how to support? Don't,
1: if you don't know where these people are and you don't know how many yeah. people you're trying to help, yeah. yeah. You need, need numbers. We need more numbers, more stats. Mm-hmm. That's going to help us figure out how we support this community uh, and where this community is and, and how you can support them because if you don't know, you can't. If you don't know where the people you need to help are and how many people you need to help, how do you help them? Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, And we will see you on the next episode. We won't see you at all because it's a podcast, but you can hear us on the next episode of the
3: podcast.